If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. States are greedy, they spend money, they like, they like borrowing money, um, they go to war. All these demands are, are, are things that have shaped the world for, well, the modern world for, you know, centuries. That was Quasi Quateng talking about the lessons that we can learn from looking at the history of money. What fascinates me is how these people put up with what they did. And when I can feel, when I can see, when I can read that these people are no different from me, from my best friends, then it really does give you a a, a sense of awe. And that was Richard Van Emden speaking about his new book that features the words and photographs of soldiers in the First World War. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. It's available in all good newsagents, or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for the latest subscription offers. Plus, we have digital editions available for the iPad, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. The volatile nature of global financial markets since 2008 has made money a hot political topic. But as historian and Conservative MP Kwasi Kwarteng argues in his new book War and Gold, the historical relationship between international politics and finance has much to teach us about the present situation. He spoke to our books editor, Matt Elton, about 500 years of conflict, conquest and currency. So, the book opens uh, with the conquest of Peru uh, by the Spanish. Uh, What effect did the discovery of the New World have on the European economy? 
I think it was hugely transformational. And I mentioned uh, John Maynard Keynes, he, he talked about it. And if you look at um, what happened, you will see that lots of silver and gold flooded Europe. And essentially what that did was push up prices. And in the course of the book, I refer to contemporary accounts of uh, people discovering, I mean, they knew themselves that actually the influx of gold and silver had pushed up prices. And so there are people saying, well, you know, we, you could buy a, a loaf of bread for one you know, copper piece, and now it's one gold piece, or, or, and that sort of thing. I mean, we call it inflation. But they were very aware, I think, um, of the fact that this, these new discoveries uh, pushed up prices. And of course, there's a wider argument which Keynes, would, uh, Keynes actually made was that the, 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 the increase in prices was, stim was a great stimulus to business activity. Okay. So if you're you know, opening a shop or you're a business or whatever you're doing, economically, if in an environment where the prices are going up, you're, quite, you're kind of incentivized. Uh, to, uh, it's a great spur to trade because you can always, you can always make money. Yeah. Um, yes. And there's always more money and it's, it's, it's all very expansionary. Mm. And uh, I think in, in, in many ways the discovery of the new world did give that kickstart to to the European economy. Mm. I think what's what's fascinating about the book, though, is that you argue that although it had this seemingly positive effect on the economy, yeah. it had a series of negative effects on political and uh, I guess social aspects. Yes, yeah. I mean I think with Spain, there was a there was what's called I mean you, you see it actually I didn't make the point in the book but you see it in oil rich countries now the, they call it the curse of oil. Mm. So they have all these limitless resources. But as a consequence of the limited resources, there's a lot of corruption. Um, they are overly dependent on oil because it's so easy to make money from oil, so they don't diversify their industry, they don't diversify their, their businesses, and they become dependent on this one commodity. Mm. Um, and to a lesser degree, I suppose you could make that argument about Spain. You know, they relied on these uh, imports of silver and gold. Um, and Spanish industry, there's an argument that suggests Spanish industry and actual agriculture and all the rest of it sort of fell behind as they were completely sort of addicted to, to endless flows of silver and gold. And of course, the one thing about being quite rich is that you feel that you've got lots of money, so you spend it. So the fact that they were, they were, they were, they were getting more money in, prices were going up, um, meant that they had to spend more money, as it were. Yes, I see. And, and okay. the whole thing, and actually, and I meant, make this, mentioned at this point in the book, just at the moment when they were getting all this silver and gold, that was when what we call the military revolution was taking place. And the military revolution, I could have spoken a bit about more, I'm not a military historian, but the military revolution essentially, you know, a lot of the kit, the hardware of, of fighting becomes a lot more expensive. Um, sort of guns, artillery, all of that sort of thing. Um, and, and just at the moment when they were getting richer, the costs of what they were trying to do ballooned. Right, okay. Uh, and so in, in the end, they, were, they resorted to borrowing money. Mm. Uh, to try and make the shortfall. So they become addicted to spending at a time when spending became increasingly important. Yes, to, 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 that's right, that's yeah. exactly right. And also, so you've got this situation where, and also, I mean, this is where the politics comes in. Charles V essentially inherits a vast empire um, through a series of dynastic uh, alliances made by his grandfather and his parents. So he inherits the Holy Roman Empire, which is based around sort of Central Europe, German-speaking Europe, uh, Vienna, and he also inherits Spain. Uh, and so the, the, the big question, that, I suppose in the early 16th century, and you see it in things like the Tudors and, and Henry VIII, the big backdrop 
is obviously the emperor, um, and he's emperor and king of Spain, and that was that forms the backdrop to you know Catherine of Aragon and all that's familiar to us in terms of British history. Mm. Um, and the big question there was how do we accommodate this big superpower, um, this big monarch who is king of, not only of Spain but also of um, you know the Holy Roman Emperor, and uh, and that that sort of and, and as as sort of the front runner in a way, uh, Charles V has to spend a lot of money. He has to keep up lots of armies. Yeah. He has to. He's got lots. He's operating in lots of different theatres of war, um, and that and and that in a, in a sense puts uh, very difficult, heavy strains on his kingdom. Mm. So I mean, is it true to say that it's the kind of the international rivalry that leads Spain to or the Spanish Empire to overspend? Yes, I mean it's all about. Um, that sort of strategic dominance uh, over Europe, um, and yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, what's driving the spending is the, this bid for mastery, if you like, this hegemonic um, role that, that, that the Spanish aspire to. Mm. And of course, the other powers in Europe are trying to drag them down. Mm. Um, and that's, in a sense, what British foreign policy at the time was about. Yeah. It was about to try to contain and limit, um, you know, over mighty powers in Europe. Mm. And, and the, the same pattern from the British point of view is repeated um, through, you know, the 17th century, Louis Fourteenth, and beyond. So, I mean, how far can we say that the decline of the Spanish Empire was caused by, by gold and overspending? Um, I think, obviously, there are no, there's no, there's, there are no monocausal um, sort of reasons in history. There are always a multiplicity of reasons, some more important than others. But clearly that was a factor, I think. The factor that there was over what modern strategists call um, uh, overreach, you know, the, the, the imperial overreach. And that's a theme of the book, you know, people get all these responsibilities, great powers, and they find they simply can't afford uh, to, to, to pay for them all. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, obviously the book covers a huge sweep of time. Um, what was the situation in England and France uh, in the 17th century, I suppose? So the 17th, and, the 17th century is interesting. So the, the first... And then maybe actually I could have brought it out a bit more, but the, the, the reason why I think Spain failed was that they, they had all this silver and gold, but they didn't really have the institutions to manage it. Okay. And so what, what, what's interesting about the second chapter is really you've got a Bank of England, um, which was essentially a kind of stepchild of the Bank of Amsterdam, uh, Dutch finance. So what from a history of finance point of view, 1688, which we know as 1689 as the glorious revolution, um, becomes interesting because you have essentially a William III, uh, who's a Dutch uh, prince, coming over as king. Mm. And what he did was he introduced Dutch finance. Uh, so the, the, the Dutch were at the head of um, sort of financial innovation. He comes into Britain, rather England, and introduces a lot of the measures. So they've got to raise money again to fight war. Mm. Um, and one of the things that they discover or devise is the Bank of England, which itself is modelled on the Bank of Amsterdam. Um, and lends money to the government. That's its principal, um, its principal function. Mm. And so, what you have in England is a, for the time, a very well-developed financial sector, and that's what essentially propels uh, the growth of England and growth of Britain as a, as a power. Mm. France, by contrast, it's very they're very interesting um, studies. And one thing that the most important thing to remember about the history of the period that people forget, but we because today. Uh, and they, this is why they forget it. Today, Britain and France have very similar populations in terms of numbers. Okay. We're both roughly 60, 65, whatever million. We're pretty much equal. Mm. In 1700, the population of France was about 20 million. 
and the population of England was about five million. Wow. Okay. So you're looking at a four to one ratio. Yeah. So in all the you know when you re even even as late as 1815, the ratio was probably not that far off two to one. So what what the people don't realise in terms of the, the, you see it in Shakespeare and Henry V, all of that against France is that it's the little plucky England against the big might of France. Mm because to the 16th century and the 17th century uh, Londoner and Englishman, France was a big beast, it was a big power, very big physical country as it is today, but actually had many more people and, and, and actually more resources um, ostensibly to draw from. But one of the things that England had in this period, certainly in the end of the 17th century that, that France didn't, was a much more sophisticated financial system. Right. Uh, and, and, and so the financial system is what can, it's pure leverage in the sense is that the smaller power can become much bigger mm. and can command bigger and better resources, which sort of draws the, the balance, equalises the balance between England and France. Mm. What effect did the uh, introduction of paper money have on global finance? I think paper money is one of the great sort of inventions, and some people might say they're a great curse, because once you, um, if your currency is linked to a commodity, there's a natural limit to how much money you can have. Um, so uh, things like the gold standard means that the, 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 the currency, the paper money which you have, paper notes, are linked to a gold standard. In, a, in what's called a fiat money system, you can literally just print money. Um, and that's essentially the system that's operated since 1971, um, which is one of the you know, big sections of my book, the last period, is that we've been able to essentially allow central banks to print money, mm. and that's what they do. Things like QE, there are lots of different fancy words for it, but that—that's essentially what they're doing. And I think um, what that means is that so credit, you can have credit bubbles. I mean, that's one of the points I make in the book. Credit bubbles are much more frequent now than they probably were before 1971. Um, you can borrow money very easily because there's no what they call a fractional reserve, which means that the bank has to have a certain amount of reserve. And in the old days, it was a gold. It was you know. Yeah. So all things like that mean that paper money um, makes debt a lot easier to to raise debt. Right. Okay. Uh, but the but the flip side of it is it's a lot easier to have these bubbles where people are borrowing money, buying stuff, and forcing prices up. And so it's a lot more unstable in that sense. Yeah, it is. Okay. I mean, that's a, that's a very. I, I think it is. I think it, that's that's generally um, accepted. Now the practicalities of going back to a gold standard are such that that's not very unlikely to happen. But um, I think I think there was a stability in gold, which um, uh, which perhaps we've lost in, in this, this era of paper money. Mm. I mean, following the introduction of paper money, um, people seem to kind of cling on to the idea of gold, you know, the gold standard. That's right. I mean, one of the things that's happened over the last forty years is that the price of gold has shot up. So the the, the old Bretton Woods price of gold was thirty five dollars an ounce. Today it's about thirteen hundred dollars an ounce. So you can see over that period of time. Uh, how gold has essentially um, uh, increased in value as against the dollar, um, largely, I think, because of this paper money um, issue. But also, I mean, people um, in Britain today, you know, there are people alive in Britain today who certainly remember pounds, shillings and pence. And, um, and some people, uh, you know, older people, um, would have had experience, not of the gold standard, but they would have been sort of aware of it. Um, yeah, I mean, Britain left the gold standard in 1931, 83 years ago, it's a very long time ago, but, but it, it's not so long ago that it's, it's something that we can't imagine. Yeah. Um, and actually, another point about paper money is that, you know, so if you look at things like house prices, before 1970, let's say, 
um, inflation wasn't, it existed, but it wasn't rampant. So if you read um, Dickens or Emma, uh, sorry, Jane Austen, mm. you know, Emma, um, the sums of money there are roughly, they, they're quite stable. Um, and then it was only really, the, the inflation only really got going in the 70s. Right. Um, okay. And you see that in house prices and all the rest of it. So it really had a big effect, this kind of shift from gold to paper. Yeah, I think over time, I think it's, had, it's, been, a, it's been a fundamental shift. I think, um, you know, big inflation, um, house price booms, access to credit, credit cards, all of that sort of thing. I think has been, uh, you know, has, has transformed the world we live in. Mm. I mean, we'll come back to the modern uh, era a bit sure. later. Um, but kind of heading back, I suppose, to the early part of the of the twentieth century, yeah. uh, the First World War yes. is obviously a big a big thing this year with the anniversary. Sure, sure. I mean, how how can we understand it in purely financial terms? What effect did it have on on Europe? Well, I think the, the First World War was probably the big watershed <clears throat> in terms of you know financial history, because up to that point. Essentially, certainly the 50 years before the First World War, <clears throat> you had the establishment of the gold standard around sort of the Western world. Yeah. So Britain, as I described, um, went back to the gold standard in 1919. But in the late 19th century, you're getting countries like Germany, um, I think Japan, uh, the United States, adopting the gold standard really for the, the first time in many ways. The Americans had it at the end of the 18th century, but obviously it was suspended in the Civil War, but they went back to it. Mm. And so you have this very old period, and economists um, refer to it, um, of, of sort of, you know, proto-globalization. Between about 1890 and 1914, uh, and I, I describe that world um, through the eyes of John Maynard Keynes, because he lived through it and was very articulate mm. describing it. Um, you have a world in which, you know, um, there's free movement of labor, there are no really strong immigration rules. Um, that's not something I talk about, but there's certainly free movement of capital. You can uh, pick up a phone and buy shares uh, anywhere. Uh, you didn't really have passports um, before 1914. So you had this sort of liberal world where capital could, and, and goods and people could move freely. And the First World War changed all of that. Uh, so the first, one of the first things in the First World War, the banks um, stopped uh, paying gold. Um, there is, uh, I think my argument is that a lot of the financial muscle goes over to America um, where they, they, they didn't stop uh, paying gold. Um, and also Britain, which for about 90 years, 800, nearly 100 years up to 1914, had essentially been running balanced budgets. Britain becomes a debt financing uh, country. So in order to win the war, in order to beat the Kaiser, um, we borrow lots of money and essentially print money. Mm. We come off the gold standard and we borrow uh, lots of sterling to buy stuff, to buy things with which to, to, to win the war. Um, because people might not know about the Bretton Woods yeah. uh, situation, could you explain perhaps that? Um, yeah, Bretton Woods was um, a conference in 1944, which was to decide what would happen uh, to the kind of global financial system uh, after the war. And so if you're sitting in 1944 looking back at the last hundred years, the first, you know, from 1840 to, let's say, 1914, was the evolution of the gold standard. Right. By 1914, you had a very stable situation at the point just before the First World War. When the First World War starts, lots of deficit spending, the gold standard is suspended. And, and so the, the interwar period is a really, they're trying to work out how to get back to some sort of stability. Um, and so, but the, the, so they gave back onto the gold standard, and then there's all this credit boom and all the rest of it, and the crash happens. 
and a whole bunch of them leave the gold standard mm. to try and, because the Keynes family said we loosen our golden fetters. And so at that point, they, just, they have to decide, okay, so what, where, what are we going to do? And I think the really interesting thing about Bretton Woods is that this you know, very chic, I suppose it was then, resort in New Hampshire, you have people, I think, from about 40 different countries, 39 different countries, representatives, um, debating and sort of drawing up measures as to how the world should organize its financial affairs mm. after the war. And what I say is the most interesting thing is, is that they still had quite a big role for gold. Right. You know, despite all the, um, the agonies of, 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 the, of the depression uh, and the traumas of devaluation and the traumas of leaving the gold standard and all of that stuff and the world war, mm. there's still, it's quite curious actually that they, um, they still have this they go back to a system where the dollar is essentially pegged to gold, and that, right, you know, is dominates international finance yeah. for 25 years. So, moving forward to the Second World War, um, what effect? How, how did that change the balance of financial power and stability in Europe and in America? I think the Second World War was fascinating. So, my own view, which comes out in the book, is that after the First World War, America was sort of the top dog, but no one really. Admitted it. Okay. I mean, it was it was kind of known, but it wasn't obvious. Yeah. After the Second World War, it was obvious that the United States of America was the preeminent mm -hmm. uh, military uh, and financial and economic power. There was no question, um, but that after the Second World War, America was the number one top nation. And actually, Churchill, you know, in his sort of flippant way, said, "Well, you know, if I were born again, I'd want to be American." Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, he was born in 1874 when Britain was the top yes, dog, when he yeah. could see. And actually, you know, I'd quote a figure, I think something like the figure I remember, something like 50% of global GDP in 1945 was America. Um, and so you had this situation where I don't think, and I mentioned this, and I don't think any, at any time in the history of the world, maybe Imperial Rome, but I, I, I don't know, I haven't seen the figures, if there are any figures. But I don't think it, it was very rare that one particular nation should have such a vast um, uh, share mm. of, of, of the global economy. Yeah. And, and I think in '45, if you look, if one looked around the world, you would see that America was the, you know, certainly outside the Soviet bloc, was the predominant power. In terms of the post Second World War period, which global powers do you see as emerging on the world stage? as having a huge impact on the way that finance... I think China is obviously the yeah. big story of our time, of the last 25 years, um, and will probably continue to be a big, if not the big story, in the next sort of period. Mm. Um, I mean, essentially, you've got vast numbers of people um, who are all aspiring to a kind of middle-class lifestyle, or a large section of whom are aspiring to a middle-class lifestyle. They were, you know, 49, the communists took over, for 30 years after that, it was a communist yeah. sort of command economy. Deng Xiaoping comes in in 78 and essentially completely reforms um, the nature of the Chinese state, mm -hmm. and certainly on the economic side of things. And so in the last sort of 30 years, 35 years, you've had this um, growing economic powerhouse. Essentially, they've given up the Marxist um, organization of their society the strictly Marxist. I mean, the party is nominally Marxist, but they're essentially bureaucrats. And they've tried to unleash, you know, this capitalist mm. sort of giant. 
on this huge huge scale on a huge scale yeah. so so that's had massive impact across the world. I mean, I, I could have talked. I mean, you could write a whole book of that length yes. about this. Um, you know, across Africa yeah. uh, and across um, you know parts of the developing world, large parts of the developing world, and also within their own sphere of influence in Asia. Mm. I mean, I suppose the other big story uh, post-war has been the establishment of the you know the EU. The that's right. That's right. So that was that was another another thing. Um, I mean, it's quite an extraordinary process. The EU. I mean, I think of the euro. I think it was, um, again, I mean, I try and bring it out in the book, it was a long project. Hmm. I mean, it wasn't something that was just dreamed yeah. up by people, you know, in the, in the 80s and 90s. So it was something that was a long, drawn-out project. Hmm. And actually, you know, whether you love or loathe the European Union and the European project, you have to admire the, the strategic vision um, of, 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 of things like the single currency. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, that's one of the things I try and tease out of the book. For British politicians, we, we, we don't really have that sort of strategic view that they have in the sense that we think they're coming up with all these madcap schemes. But actually, there's a sort of method to the madness. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's part of a much bigger, much longer story, okay. a bigger architecture uh, than we're conscious of as politicians yeah. in Britain. I mean, who do you see as being the winners and the losers of that whole big, massive project? I think the Germans have done well out of it because I think they always understood the nature of what it would mean. Um, I think they knew that the Euro would be, um, that they essentially had um, a strong currency, and in order to compete, they would have to lower their costs because the Euro would be a weaker uh, currency, would be, so their exports would be more expensive to other people. So they, 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 they planned and, 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 and adapted themselves to that situation. The, People who did very badly out of it were the fringe um, Euro countries, Italy, but more particularly Greece um, and uh, Spain to a lesser degree. Um, and essentially what happened, and I talk about it in the book, if you're a bad credit and you want to borrow money, you have to pay high interest rates. So in the, in the drachma days, in the lira days, these governments would say, look, you know, lend us 100 million lira it was over five years and the investors would say okay we'll charge you 10% okay 10 years we'll charge you 10% high interest rates as they joined the euro they, because it was all the same currency their interest rates that they could they could borrow at were were much lower okay yeah so what you would do I think what a rational person would do in that situation if their interest rates were getting lower they would try and borrow the money and pay off debt Whereas they just simply borrowed more money. And I mean, conversely, you write that this whole story is being characterised by moments of madness. Yes. Um, do you see there as being one particular period of, of being really negative or confusing in its. I think, well, I think you could argue the period of, uh, between about uh, 71 more broadly, but latterly, the last 15 years, up to 2008, okay. there was some pretty crazy stuff. And when I talk about, you know, these mortgage lenders in the United States, um, you know, people who were essentially writing out checks for people who didn't have an income, so they couldn't pay um, the interest on these loans. Um, that was a moment of madness. Um, the Spanish sort of bid for world hegemony and power was probably a moment of madness. Yeah. The South Sea bubble was a sort of moment of madness. Um, yeah, there are lots of moments of madness uh, in the course of the book, and I think that uh, you know that that's part of the sort of dynamic of the of the book. I mean, I, I mentioned in the preface that 
my original title was Order and Chaos, because I see the, the you know, periods of chaos following order. And it's quite, you know, the last sort of three or four hundred years, that's probably quite a good moral of thinking about it. Yeah. And I think at the moment we're kind of probably trying to come to the end of the period of chaos. We're going to try and work out yeah. you know, a more stable system, perhaps. I mean, given the whole cyclical nature that you describe in the book, yeah. how do you think we can escape that? Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I tend to have an orthodox view in that I think government expenditure, you know, needs to be addressed. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's something that, that people would find uh, probably more acceptable, you know, in an earlier time. Um, and that's clearly an important factor. Um, I also think that, um, you know, access, uh, you know, it needs to be slightly more regulated, probably, the system. What was the thing that surprised you the most? In researching the book? Mm. I think the, the repetition. Okay, yeah. You know, a lot of the debate, I mean, uh, one thing that I discovered, which I don't think anyone else has touched on, was that the if you look, there was a, a sort of minor crisis in 1825. It was quite a big crisis at the time. It was exactly the same in many ways as what happened in 2000 and up the run up to 2008. Okay. So you had a low interest rate environment. And what happens in low interest rates is that bankers and people want to get higher returns. I think there's no point buying government securities. I can only get 2%. So why don't we buy Argentinian government railway bonds <laughs> at 7%? Yeah. <laughs> And they describe these Victorian, they're not even Victorian, they're pre-Victorian bankers, mm. describe this crazy search for yield, which encourages people to do these speculative um, investments. Um, and then, of course, it all, they, all, they, all, they all come, they all blow up. Mm. And uh, there are descriptions, and that, and, that, and, the, and the, it's, it was very similar to what happened, actually, in the, in the last period before 2008. You had very low interest rates, because there was, you know, people wanted, after 9-11, people were trying to stimulate the economy and the Fed had low interest rates and Greenspan and all that sort of stuff. And, and as a consequence, you know, if you're a banker sitting in Iowa, you don't want to buy a US government debt and get 2%, but you want to lend to Mexicans who are going to promise you to, who are going to say they're going to borrow at 10%. Yeah, yeah. And then you get the yield. And of course, it all works fine and dandy until they can't pay. And so the whole the loan has to be written off. Yeah. But that's, uh, and that, that really interested me as a sort of historian of, of the economy and finance, that really interested me. But, and there were other instances where the same sort of patterns, you know, after wars, you, you know, you print money, and then once, you, once the war's won, you try and go back to some sort of orthodoxy. Uh, we did that in 1819 after the Napoleonic War, and we tried to do the same thing in 25. Mm. Um, and then we, you know, and, and those sort of patterns um, I found really interesting. Just to kind of tie things together at the end, I suppose, is that we're saying the links are between between war and expansion or yes. expansion. So what, and so money. what I would say is, that you have a gold standard. Let's say you, the, the model starts is stability, and then you have to fight a war for whatever reason. And problem thing about about wars is that they're bloody expensive. Yeah. yeah. And so the only way you can actually really f buy stuff is by printing your own money. So you say, forget all that gold standard stuff. We're going to borrow as much money as we can, mm. um, you know, sort of paper money, and then spend it on stuff. Yeah. And that's what, and that's, and then once they finance it, they think, oh, you know, we're in a bit of a bother. We need to try and get fiscal orthodoxy again. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's this, it's this sort of cycle mm. that I try and describe throughout the book, and that's what shapes the narrative of the book. Yeah, fantastic. And finally, what new understanding of the story of money or finance, would you like readers to leave this book? I just with? like to think, you know, I think the most important thing is, it pro if, if you think it's happened before, it probably has happened before. 
there's, uh, in terms of finance and the way people are, there's an incredible um, uh, close connection, I think, between um, what's happened in the past and what's happening now. Largely a function of human nature, um, in terms of you know, how we try and survive, um, how states and nations try and conduct themselves. And I think that, you know, I think looking at history is, this is a classic case in which the past does inform uh, what's going to happen in the future. I mean, it gives you an idea of what's going to happen in the future because, um, you know, states are greedy, they spend money, they like, they like borrowing money, um, they go to war. Um, all these demands are, are, are things that have shaped the world for, well, the modern world for, you know, centuries. And, um, and I think understanding the sort of dynamic between these two um, is very important to understanding, you know, what the future might bring. That was Quasi Quarte. War and Gold, a 500-year history of empires, adventure and debt, is out now, published by Bloomsbury in the UK and Public Affairs in the US. And Quasi will be talking about his book at our History Weekend Festival, for which tickets are still on sale. Visit historyweekend.com for tickets and information. And if you'd like to read more from Quasi and Matt, you'll find an interview in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is now on sale. Also this month, we take a look inside the mind of Richard III, we explore some myths of the Wild West, we find out why the Battle of Bannockburn became so integral to Scottish history, and discover the story of the Victorian letter scammers. You can get hold of our July issue now in all good news agents and digitally. For our July issue, we've launched a fully interactive iPad edition, especially designed for the format. If you do happen to have an iPad, this would be a great time to give it a try. You can find the BBC History magazine app on the newsstand or iTunes or else via our website. And if you take out a subscription, your first issue is free. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. Much has been written in this centenary year about the causes of the First World War, its huge scale and many consequences. 
but what was day-to-day life like on the front line? That's the subject of Richard Van Emden's new book, Tommy's War, which collects soldiers' first-hand accounts and photographs to tell their stories. Matt Elson spoke to him earlier this month and started by asking him what had prompted him to write this book. Well, I'm always keen to look for new angles when writing about the Great War. I mean, so many people say to me, well, it must have been written out by now. Every general's been talked about, every battle's been examined. But actually, there's, there are many, many new stories you can look at. And one that absolutely fascinated me was to try and put together a book which I felt had never been done before, in which you put together contemporary um, uh, documents, contemporary memoirs, contemporary contemporary writings by the veterans themselves with the photographs that they themselves took. So these men who took their cameras to the war, they took photographs throughout uh, the 1418 period. And I just wanted to, to marry those together with the words that they wrote, sometimes under fire, sometimes maybe a week afterwards. But there is not a single story in this book that goes beyond the Great War. Talking about these photos and these kind of records, where did you find them? You know, what sort of sources did you use to find these accounts? Um, well, I, I have bought over the, over many, many years, uh, I mean, not dozens, but hundreds of uh, out-of-print memoirs, books that were written during the, during the course of the war or shortly afterwards from, from diaries written by these men. Um, and these books have literally been lost. I mean, they're just, they've been out of print for 60, 70, 80 years. No one really knows about them. So a lot of the material came from those sorts of books, which I felt were, were, were just completely un- unexplored. Um, plus also documents documents from you know the imperial war museum from regimental archives from the national archives and from friends as well you know when you've been in the sort of first world War industry as i have for over 30 years you make great contacts and you have people who say look i've got this wonderful selection of letters would you like to use them so it's really a sort of a collection from all over the place built up over as i say over three decades um so what impression do we get of the men who made these documents and these photographs well, the impression you get is very strongly that they are just like you and me. I mean, you hear their, their, their voice at the time. You hear about their fears and concerns, their anxieties for their own sort of well-being and those of their families. And, and you hear, too, from men who are clearly desperate to survive, but men who also understood, you know, their, their, their sort of duty, not just to their country, but to their comrades. And, and they sort of... That comes across very, very strongly throughout the book that these men, uh, you know, that they're no different from us. You know, this is only 100 years ago. So it's really helping. You know, what fascinates me is how these people put up with what they did. And when I can feel, when I can see, when I can read that these people are no different from me, from my best friends, then it really does give you a a sense of awe as to what they put up with. And um, that, I think, is the the greatest impression I get from these accounts. Mm. So what sort of period do the accounts cover? Uh, they cover right from the, the, the outbreak of war all the way through to the armistice. Um, as I say, every single story has to be written before the end of the Great War. So you've literally got men joining up in 1914, talking about enlisting some very, very funny stories from individuals queuing up in, in sort of London, in the centre of London, trying to enlist with people without, sh- you know, people standing next to them without shoes on, others with bowler hats, you know, the, the whole, everything from the sort of, oh, <laughs> Would ready to put it sort of the hoi polloi right up to the, <laughs> the the great and the good really. I mean everybody joined up and um, and 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 so you get stories like that all the way through to their training to their first 
experiences in France, as I say, all the way through to the great battles of the Somme and, and, and Third Epe, through to the armistice. Um, what impression then, I suppose, do we get of people's first experiences of the war, kind of being on the front line for the first time? Well, you get a sense of wonder. I mean, a lot of soldiers, I mean, one of the things that so many soldiers did and didn't live to see the following morning is that, is that kind of childlike interest in, what, in everything that was going on around them. That first time in the trench, I mean, there's one soldier who writes about, you know, the kind of, wow, here I am. I'm in the frontline trench. There is, the, I'm, there's nothing between me and the Germans. Now, the, the temptation for these men to look over the top and have a quick peep at the trenches was enormous. And a lot of them sadly got picked off by snipers. But that's the sort of it's, it's that sense of you know, wonderment. I'm abroad. I mean, many, many of these men, many of these, not just officers, not just other ranks, but officers too, had never been abroad. So the sense of you know, standing there, I am on the continent of France. Here I am to, you know, to save, to save Europe from this tyranny of the Germans. But you know, also this kind of complete wonderment at the fact that they have finally got over there, and, uh, and there they are going towards the front line. Yes, they can hear the gunfire in the distance, and I'm sure. You know, there's a, the, the, the butterflies in the stomach, but there is this childlike enthusiasm which does sadly um, diminish as time passes. I was going to say, do we follow some characters right through the war? We do. Uh, I mean, some characters all the way through to, and so sadly, their deaths. I mean, some of the books I used for this, um, uh, for this, for Tommy's War, are. Um, letters and diaries put together by grieving parents so they sort of wrote these sort of memorial books so you can follow an individual you can hear his his own sort of authentic voice being at the front writing to his parents talking about everyday life and you know as you go through that this person is going to die in 1916 others do go almost all the way through the war i mean it's it's you know fairly rare for someone to literally join up in 1914 and still be on the front line in 1918 but i have a couple of a uh, couple of examples of that do we get a sense then of people's character changing as they face the horrors of war? Very much so. Very much indeed. Um, there's one man in particular, and he sadly does die, uh, a man called Lieutenant Southwell. And he's a very sort of literary man, very, a, a very intelligent man. And he goes to France. And again, you get this sort of sense of, you know, I'm doing my duty. I'm with my friends. This is, a, you know, a wonderful experience. And very soon he, he gets, he's in the Battle of the Somme. And you just see this just black depression come over him. He loses his... Uh, best friend, um, albeit he, he, this best friend is serving in another battalion, but he writes home to his mother saying, this is just beyond the pale, I can't take this anymore. You know, and yet at the same time, he knows his duty. He knows he's got to continue. He's got to look after the men under his command. But you do get this sense of total depression leading up almost to the day before he's killed in action on the Somme in September. Some of the photos in the book, which I've seen an early version of, are striking. They're incredible photos. Are there any photos for you that stand out? Yes. I mean, there are so many. Uh, there's one I was just looking at before we started talking, and it's, it's a remarkable image, not for what it, in a sense, what it shows. It just, it, it's a picture of a sky, and you would think, well, that's nothing much. But actually, it's taken at 3.45 a.m. by a private with a camera. Now, back, cameras were banned by Christmas 1914. So we're very fortunate that a lot of officers and men chose to ignore that ban and uh, face court martial and keep their cameras with them. And this was a private in 1917. And he's taking a picture of the opening bombardment to the Third Battle of Ypres. And the sky is literally lit up with gunfire. 
the whole night sky is just it's almost daylight and yet it's 3 45 a.m and it's such an extraordinary image to have taken that in itself you'd look at it and go okay well that's a sort of night sky all lit up but when you know what it is it is absolutely incredible um and there are there are others that uh, there's another one of, of, of some men just climbing onto a bus in 1914. It was an old omnibus taking them up to the front line. And what's so unusual is that the man who's taking the photograph has just climbed up the sort of outside stairs of, the, of this omnibus. And he's standing on the top and he's taking a picture of the men in front of him, climbing on the bus in front of him. And it's such an unusual, it's a beautifully constructed image. And it's also taken on the hoof. You know, it's just taken at that split second. No one's posing for the photograph. No one's looking around and smiling. It's just, I'm just going to take my camera out and click this picture. And so it's really, really unusual. And then one other picture, if I may mention one other, it's a picture I came across. Again, I, I, I bought it on a sort of online website and I looked at it and the man wanted a lot of money for this picture. And at first I thought, no, no, it's too much. And then I looked at it again and I thought, you will never, ever see a photograph as extraordinary as that again. And in 30 years, I've never seen a picture like it. It's taken in the British frontline trench on the, on the uh, 21st of March, 1918, on the first day of the German uh, March offensive. And this German has jumped into the British frontline trench in the middle of the fighting. Two British, I mean, it's a horrible picture in many ways. There are two British soldiers dead, literally have just been killed. And he's had the sort of calmness, the presence of mind to take out his camera, put his rifle up, up on the sort of side and take a photograph of this melee, of this moment in this. In, in, and you can see, you can see the smoke. You can see that the, that the carnage is going on at that split second. And yet he's taking his camera out to take a photograph. And that is so rare. That is so extraordinary. That book, uh, I mean, I've given it a double page spread in the book. It is, you will not see another image like it. Talking about the ways in which the soldiers dealt with the things that they witnessed and experienced, um, how important was humour in this? Uh, humour is critical to the mental survivor, survival of men on the Western Front. There's no two ways about it. It might be the blackest humour imaginable. I always remember reading a story of a man who, after the Battle of Luce, said that his men were putting heads to do, back to uh, rolling them like like a sort of 10 pin bowling back to the heads of decapitated men and it was uh, he just said it was the darkest darkest humor imaginable but it was their only way of coping and uh, this was you know incredibly important you're under um, extraordinary strain on a daily basis it doesn't matter if you're under shell fire if you're being machine gunned if you're even going over the top but just daily life when you're in the front line you know your life is on the line any mo you know, at, 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 at every moment imaginable you know the germans can open shelling they can they can drop a couple of um um uh, mortars straight into your trench and you can be dead at any time so the strain was unimaginable and therefore humor was critical and there's a lot of humor in the book i just felt well i don't want to make this book a dark sort of miserable read i want people to think that yes actually men did have fun they did enjoy themselves there's a wonderful wonderful court martial in the book not a court martial it's not nobody facing the death penalty or anything like that it's an individual who's been caught basically uh, shooting farmers chickens chickens and the 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 writer wrote it within days of this court martial and it is one of the funniest things i've ever read i wrote it i read it to a great friend of mine and i had tears rolling down my face and i 
promise you that was true. And basically, this 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 private is coming up with the most fatuous excuses for how he managed to shoot these chickens. All of which he's a basically he's saying, you know, he was mucking around with his gun and playing with a bullet in the breech, and the bullet and the, and the, the rifle went off and happened to shoot six chickens that were all standing in a row, you know, and he put them in his tunic pocket to go and tell the farmer that um, that he, he'd accidentally done this and he was going to compensate him. I mean, it was just so ridiculous. And even the judge says, look, do you want to go and think about your story before we pass any judgment on this? And it is, it is hysterical because you have witnesses brought in utterly inarticulate witnesses who don't know how to give evidence and they start going off on one and the judges are trying to tell them to be quiet it is just uh, it's, it's something which only a person who was there who could write about it at the time could recreate a court martial like that it's just it it, it it it's wonderful do we get any sense of how they viewed the wider war and if they had any criticisms of it um Soldiers didn't tend to view the wider war. Uh, we like to think that they, they should have done. But no, I mean, they're in a trench. Their vision of view was you know, a matter of you know 20 yards, 50 yards on either side. If they were behind the lines, well, OK, they were in a nice billet somewhere. And what they were concerned about was resting and recuperating and getting themselves mentally prepared to go back up the line again. Very few soldiers at the time. In fact, I say this and I don't think there's one individual that i i read from these, these contemporary sources who ever mentioned people like haig you know general or field marshal haig um there was no criticism of the senior command there is criticism of of local attacks of individual of situations where clearly the men shouldn't have gone into action at this particular point and they suffered very heavily and there is criticism there but it's very localized criticism you know it's only what these men can see at that particular moment it's not saying well i'm going to extrapolate from that and criticize the high command that just isn't the nature of of of, of soldiers in the great war if you could travel back to the period and ask a question of some or just one of the people involved in these stories what sort of thing would you ask them how do you cope how do you cope with what you put up with and that's why i studied the great war that's why I've been fascinated for 30 years, because I, I always joke with friends, I would have been the first person executed for cowardice because I don't believe I could have put up with it. Maybe I could have done. Maybe I'd have been a good soldier. I just don't know. And I thank heavens that I'm, I, I will never be tested because these men were tested to the nth degree. And it fascinates me. It fascinates me that, yes, OK, they really had no choice. Had they run away from the trench, they would have faced a firing squad. They had to put up with it. So my question would be, how do you cope? Why do you think it's so important to approach the war from the viewpoint that you've done, that you've taken? Because I, I, I just think that it, this is something that's not been looked at before. I mean, we've there are books out there which are sort of compendiums of soldiers' writings from the 1920s, 50s, 70s. But actually, you know, let's go back. Let's let's go all the way back. Let's go back to the war and say, what is it? What were these soldiers talking about in 1914, 15, 16, 17? What mattered to them? Not with any sort of revisionism, What not with any sort of, you know, having brought up believing that perhaps, you know, having read in the 60s about butchers and bunglers and, and incompetent generals. No, let's go back to what they thought at the time and let's illustrate it with their own photographs so really you take me out of the narrative you know and obviously i do have to link these stories together you take me out we are really hearing and seeing from the soldiers themselves and i do not believe i'm certain that that has never been done before 
So what do you impression do you hope that readers leave this book with of the war? Uh, I, I take I hope they just take the impression of, of you know of you know what we owe to that generation. You know, I hope they, they go away thinking, yeah, that was my granddad. That was my great grandfather. He might not be named in this particular book, but but in essence, this is what my grandfather did. Now I begin to understand perhaps a little bit more of the way he was. Maybe I can under, I can see why he was irascible when he was in his old age. Maybe I can see why he never talked about the war. Maybe I can see exactly why he talked about the war. I just would like people to go to, to read the book and then think, yeah, OK, I understand a little bit more about my family, about where my family's, uh, family has come from. Because let's face it, the vast majority of British people had um, relatives who were in the Great War. And it doesn't really matter what, almost what ethnic background you are too. There were you know, tens of thousands of Indians on the Western Front. There were men from the West Indies all over from all over China. So, you know, I really think it's a book that, that everybody in Britain can take something from. That was Richard Van Emden. Tommy's War, The Western Front, in Soldiers' Words and Photographs, is out now, published by Bloomsbury in the UK and the US. Well, that is almost all for this week's episode. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we will try to read out some of your messages in the future. One listener who got in contact recently was Michael Ranser over in California. Michael says, I'm just writing to say how much I enjoyed your interview with Adam Tooze on the consequences of the First World War. I think it was one of the most informative interviews I have heard in five years of listening to your podcasts. The interview tied together so many loose ends on the aftermath of that war, with a focus on the later actions by the Western Allies, and insight into the intentions of the national leaders, Wilson, Lloyd George and Clemenceau. It's clear that the forces of World War I were still being felt well after World War II, and I would add, certainly up through the fall of communism in 1989, and even today in some places. Keep up the good work. Thank you for that, Michael. And if you missed the interview with Adam Tooze, you can still download it from all the usual places. It was in the episode first broadcast on the 12th of June this year. And don't forget, you can also keep in touch with us on social media. On Twitter, we're at History Extra. And on Facebook, we are also History Extra. And do make sure to check out our website, historyextra.com, all the latest history news, quizzes, galleries, articles and hundreds of episodes of this podcast that go back to 2007. Next week we will be joined by Hugh Thomas to discuss the Spanish Empire while Michael Scott will be exploring the history of Delphi. Make sure to tune in for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in London and in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 